Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It's Tuesday, the 16th of November, 2021. A few uh, headlines here to get us rolling this morning. Um, Lots of rain, 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 and more rain uh, in the Pacific Northwest up into Canada. Let's be praying for people who were subject yesterday to some massive flash flooding. There are roads um, that have been cut off and several hundred people um, who for a period of time at least, were trapped in cars, um, and they didn't exactly know uh, what was happening. So let's just be praying for um, all the first responders. Let's be praying for people's safety today in the midst of all kinds of weather events. But rain in the Pacific Northwest, it's um, it's been very wet, uh, but more rain is on the way. Here is something I'd never heard of before, a Category 5 atmospheric river. Yeah. That's going to apparently cause river levels in the region to uh, be sustained at very, very um, high levels, um, in many cases outside of their banks. So I I recognize that like 90 percent of the West is currently in some sort of drought. But the one area of the West, which is the Pacific Northwest, that doesn't actually need much more rain or any more rain is, in fact, going to get more rain. So that might be a rain, rain, go away, come again another day. Little uh, opportunity. All right. Uh, yesterday, we shared that the president of the United States, Joe Biden, was going to have a virtual summit with the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. Uh, that happened. Um, and I think that, you know, you're going to hear descriptions that vary depending on the worldview of the person covering the event They did apparently talk about trade policies. They did uh, talk about human rights. The president of the United States did raise concerns um, about the abuse of the Uyghur people in China. He also reaffirmed the need for transparency in terms of COVID-19. And he asked about ways that the United States could cooperate. Now, that's going to be an interesting word that's probably going to be dissected today. Cooperate with China on issues related to climate. So um, it's important to recognize our, some language, some people are going to say that it's, you know, there's this codependent relationship between the United States and China in terms of our economies. The supply chain disruptions are evidence of that. Like you can't get a chip, this little, you know, chip to put in a car and therefore the car made in Detroit is just sitting there because it doesn't have a chip that's made in China. All right. So we have this uh, economic codependence or interdependence, depending on the language you choose to use. Um and there are businesses calling on the Biden administration to ease tariffs on China, hoping that that would reduce inflation here at home and um, loosen up the supply chain. But for those who see China as a bad actor uh, and don't want to um, reward China for bad behavior, um, they do not want to see tariffs on China eased. So that's an ongoing economic conversation. Meanwhile, on another 
challenging international front. Um, the U.S. intelligence community has now admitted that they have an intelligence blind spot uh, when it comes to monitoring irregular Russian military movements near the border with Ukraine. So U.S. officials have now publicly said they don't yet know uh, what Russians' intentions are, that there are 100,000 Russian troops amassed on the border. They recognize it could be a repeat in some way of the 2014 invasion um, of its neighbor, which resulted in Crimea being, um, you know, consumed by Russia. So, you know, that's that's what's going on. So let's be praying today on that front as well, as well as for the migrant crisis, uh, not only on our southern border and around the world, but most acutely right there on the Belarusian border with Poland, where people are freezing to death in a forest, um, literally as we speak, because there's an impasse and the people um, seeking to migrate from the Middle East into Europe are the pawns in the midst of it. So. Let's be praying uh, that headline today. All right, we're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about truth. Does the truth matter to you? Does telling the truth matter? Does repeating the truth matter? How about a lie that gets repeated so often that even people who were present think the lie has now become the truth? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. talk for a moment about um, the truth and how much the truth matters. The truth matters to me. Truth matters to me. The truth matters to me. Telling the truth matters to me. Remembering and repeating what is true matters because I'm a person who has embraced, seeks to follow and emulate the one who is the way and the truth and the life. So I contend that those who speak the truth with love We must learn how to gently correct those who tell lies. So here's the headline. And, you know, please, please, please don't take this as me picking on uh, the president today. Um, But the headline is Joe Biden confuses Saturday Night Live with real life. So this is please do not hear this as an attack on the president. This is an opportunity for us to take a headline ask what's going on, and then say, how do we confront this kind of behavior in the culture today? Because the the lie is very public, and the confusion about the truth is very public in this particular case. So here's, um, here's what's going on. Sarah Palin never said that she could see Russia from her house. That's not something Sarah Palin ever said. In the 2008 vice presidential debate, Sarah Palin said there are places in Alaska where you can literally see Russia on a clear day. That is true. She never said she could see Russia from her house. She said there are places in Alaska where you can literally see Russia on a clear day. That is true. Fast forward to a Saturday Night Live skit mocking Sarah Palin, the comedian, the actor is Tina Fey. She's the one. Tina Fey's character, misrepresenting Sarah Palin, is the one who said she could see Russia from her house. 
And what Tina Fey's character said is what has become peddled as the truth. But it's not the truth. People remember the skit mocking Sarah Palin. They don't actually remember what happened. And so you would say, well, surely the eyewitnesses to the actual presidential, vice presidential debate, surely the eyewitnesses who were present in 2008 at the event or who saw the event on television, surely they know the truth and they're repeating the truth. But that's the problem with the headline we're looking at today, because Joe Biden was present. In fact, he was on the stage at the time. In 2008, the two vice presidential candidates, the two people who were on the stage in the debate in question, those who should best know what was actually said, were Sarah Palin and Joe Biden. Joe Biden was right there on the stage. He heard Sarah Palin say what she actually said. But somehow in the subsequent years, he has gotten his own lived reality, the lived reality of standing on the stage and hearing another person say what they said, confused with a TV skit that has been more often repeated than the truth. So the lie has been repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and has thus become the truth. Now, lest you think that I'm picking on the president, let's acknowledge what's going on here and let's acknowledge it's happening in other places in the culture as well. The trick of did they really say, did he really say, did you really hear that accurately is actually like the oldest, the literal oldest trick in the literal book. The book's the Bible. The trick is pulled on Eve by the liar behind all the lies, the father of lies himself, who says of what God said, well, did he really say? Is that what he really said? We tend to remember that which is most frequently repeated, particularly if it's repeated by people we like or people in our tribe, people we want to associate with, and if it damages the credibility or it is somehow a mockery of those we don't like or those with whom we disagree. So as Christians, we have to not only be people of truth, who love the truth, who know the truth, who repeat the truth frequently, we also have to be the people that when the truth, the whole truth, or nothing but the truth is spoken in public, even repeated over and over and over again, If it's a lie, then we have to be the people who stand up and say, that's not the truth. That's not the truth of the matter. That's not the truth of what happened. And that's not the ultimate truth. Let's be people of truth who speak truth with generosity and grace in a culture today saturated by lies. We'll be right back. Cold pizza for breakfast. Warm Coke to wash it down. All righty. Uh, we had a conversation yesterday with Justin um, Early. His brand new book, Habits of the Household, is just excellent. And it got me thinking. So here is uh, the opening quote of the book, um, often attributed to, um, yeah, help help me out, Paul. Um, the Frederick quote Douglas. is, yeah, often, yeah. often attributed to Frederick Douglass. Okay, it's easier to raise strong children than to repair broken men and women. So this is a quote often attributed to Fred, Frederick Douglass. 
Um, it's easier to raise strong children, which is a little bit like my dad saying it's easier to do it right the first time um, than to go back and have to do it again. Wouldn't you rather do it right the first time, even if it takes longer, even if it's harder, even if it requires you know, more sacrifice on the front end? It's easier to raise strong children than to repair broken men and women. So this is uh, the argument you would say, uh, you could make that argument and say, um, this is why we invest in early childhood education. This is why we invest in the first thousand days um, of a pregnancy and, uh, and then of, of, the young, of the life of a young child. It's easier to raise strong children uh, than to repair broken men and women. I mean, you know, it's easier to be sure that a kid has enough calcium in their diet early on that they have strong teeth than to um, repair their teeth later in life. Like you can you can distill this down like to what you had for breakfast. So um, I was thinking about that as I was reading these just a flurry of headlines related to Loudoun County, Virginia. So the Loudoun County, Virginia headlines um are all of a topic. And that topic is, what are kids learning in schools? And so the conversations about Loudoun County schools in Virginia have become um, national conversations. It's really the epicenter of debates about what is explicitly taught in American public schools, who is teaching, how they are teaching, how parents are or are not involved, um, what's the best environment for learning for an increasingly diverse student population across the country and in particular communities? Um, Loudoun County schools reflect the generation of students now being served by public schools across America, which is to say they, uh, the students in Loudoun County, Virginia, um, are for the first time in, in that county's history non-majority, not, well, they're a non-white majority. So it's, it is a majority of students who are black and brown. The faculty in Loudoun County, like the faculty in most places across the country, are largely educa- educated in universities um, that are not really in any way reflective of the communities where those teachers and administrators now serve. There's a worldview Um, of administrators and faculty and school board members in this case that is different than parents who during COVID sort of woke up to what was going on in the classrooms where their kids are being taught. So Loudoun County schools have been in the headlines um, for a number of years now uh, because of their policies related to students who do not identify Um, with their biological gender and the accommodations that Loudoun County made for those students um, to use the bathroom of their choice, to be referred to by their preferred pronouns, even if those pronouns are fluid day to day, and requiring um, teachers, faculty, administrators, coaches to use those preferred pronouns. So those are the two storylines that we have followed in the past. And we all know the painful reality of that dad who was arrested at a school board meeting where he was seeking to get justice for his daughter who was sexually assaulted in a bathroom at her high school by a boy in a skirt who identified to the school as transgender. So that biologically male individual has now pled no contest to the charge in court and the father has been exonerated. But everyone involved is still living with the pain. And there's 
there's still an opportunity for a public apology to be made to that dad. Also exonerated is the teacher and the coach who Loudoun County suspended without pay because he refused to call a student by their preferred or fluid gender pronoun. So the school district has a policy. This individual did not adhere to the policy. And instead of um, supporting the adult, the school district suspended without pay the coach and teacher for refusing to use a preferred fluid gender pronoun of an individual student. Well, the court has said, um, no, that's not the way this is going to work. So Loudoun County denies explicitly teaching what's called critical race theory. And here's, um, here's what I want us to recognize. Just because critical race theory is not explicitly being taught, it doesn't mean that it's not the worldview out of which everything is being taught in that school or in that school district. So if critical race theory is the worldview, is the educational theory that the teachers, the administrators, um, even the school board members have been trained in, if it's the if it's the infrastructure upon which then all of the learning is based, then just because you're not expressly teaching critical race theory, like you're not going to find a, a lesson on critical race theory, it doesn't mean critical race theory isn't being taught. It's the worldview from which it's being taught. It's literally the water that everyone is now swimming in. So all of that reminded me of the imperative of Christians, of parents specifically, to train up children in the way they should go. The imperative given by God in the Shema of the Old Testament and repeated throughout the wisdom literature of the Bible, the Jewish confession of faith, we think of it as coming from Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21, Numbers 15, 37 to 41, right? These These are the prayers, this is the substance, this is the form of the faith that was the water that the people of God were swimming in. It is the worldview. The the name Shema derives from the very first word in the verse. Hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And times were set, specific times for personal and familial recitation of the Shema. Children thereby learned it. They learned it by repetition. They learned it by study. They learned it because literally their parents said it when they got up in the morning and before they went to bed at night. So what is your morning liturgy in your home, in your car, on the way to school? And what is the bedtime liturgy? And what is the liturgy of your life in between? Because our kids are swimming in the water of the culture all the time. Are we making sure that at home, with us, they're swimming in the context of the living water, of the Word of God, of the reality of who we are as God's people, a distinct people in the world today. I mean, I think about what it says in the New Testament about Jesus, right? Um, if, you, if you think about the text in Luke 2, verses 41 to 52, where, you know, they've been in Jerusalem because there was this rhythm of their, of their life. Every year they would go to the Feast of the Passover. They would travel to Jerusalem. They would journey together. Well, remember Jesus stayed behind? Well, what was he doing? He was hanging out in, uh, in the synagogue, in the temple, with the religious leaders of the day. He was learning. He was at their feet. And, um, and then he, in obedience, 
returned home, and it says at the end of that, he went with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And then it says he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What are we planting? What are we cultivating? What are we repeating? Where are we taking our kids on pilgrimage? Are we doing it year after year? Are we doing it day in and day out? Are we doing it in the morning when we get up? Are we doing it mealtime? Are we doing it uh, when we get dressed and when we get undressed? Are we doing it when we when we sit down and when we lie down and when we ride, ride in the car? And are we doing it in the evening before we tuck them into bed? If we're not, then all the influences of the world are going to be what they hear on repeat all the time. And they're going to accept what the world says is the truth instead of what we know to be the truth and the way and the life. Let's take a moment for Breakpoint. We'll be right back. When you think of yourself as a Christian, does the image of a pilgrim come to mind? Does does the image... I mean, I guess the quick image when I say that that comes to me is the image of the pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. Um, but pilgrimages are have been a part of faith and acts of faith for a long time um, and still are today. What does it look like to live and walk as a pilgrim in the midst of the world today? And what does it look like um, to have a faith that is forged in the fires of our times. So the intersection of those two conversations is what we're going to embark on next. When everything's on fire, faith forged from the ashes, my guest is Brian Zan. We'll be right back. This is Max Lucado. Haman is the villain in the book of Esther. He lived inside a one-person world. Everyone else existed to bow down to him, yet... His reign of terror came to an end in the dining hall of Xerxes. The king asked Queen Esther what she desired. He had asked this question before, and Esther had deferred. But now Esther said, Grant me my life and spare my people, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. The king asked who had done such a thing. Esther replied, Our enemy and foe is this wicked Haman. The guards hooded Haman's head and took him into custody. Our God is a just God. Nothing escapes him. No one escapes him. The wicked will not win. This is Max Lucado. All right, Brian Zand joins us now, among other things, many other things. He is the author of When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. Um, I don't I don't think I'm gonna introduce you any more than that, Brian. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good morning. Good morning. So this is like a long walk with a companion. And a playlist. So let me tell people that. If you go to Brian Zand, and that's Z-A-H-N-D, Zond, Brian Zond, Z-A-H-N-D.com, you can actually get the playlist that goes along with the book we're discussing today, When Everything's on Fire. So 
first, let's just start there, Brian. This is a long walk with a companion um, and a playlist. Invite people into the experience of When Everything's on Fire. The book was conceived while my wife and I were walking for the third time the Camino de Santiago. This is this ancient pilgrim path that begins, at least the Francis route begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, and 500 miles later you arrive in Santiago de Compostela, Spain. And we've fallen in love with these long pilgrimage walks. It helps our soul settle into a more contemplative state. And we were walking in the fall of 2019, and we'd been about 200 miles into this long walk, and we were at Castro Jariz. That's after our 15-mile walk that day, gotten settled into our little hotel where we were staying, and I was sitting on the uh, veranda. And I was just thinking about, you know, I've been passing all of these ancient churches, and there was a time when faith was assumed that God was presumed within society that God was the organizing center of society, but that time is now long gone. And I realize that people are struggling to maintain faith in an increasingly secular age. And I thought, well, uh, if I could just walk with people that are struggling, maybe beginning to, as the term in vogue is, deconstruct uh, their faith, what would I want to say to them to help them? And that's, I just outlined that the 11 chapters of this book. I gave it the title in the fall of 2019, When Everything's on Fire. I just jotted that down and had the 11 chapters. I didn't really start writing it, though, until we got back and eh, got through the holidays. So I started in January of 2020. So I already have a title, When Everything's on Fire. And then pretty soon, everything was on fire. (laughs) So, So this is my attempt to help people who feel that they're Faith is in danger of being consumed in the flames that are so vehement right now and seem to threaten Christian faith. And the reality is um, I can either spend my life trying to avoid the flames, I can get close enough to the flames that I snatch others out of them, or I can recognize that I have to endure the flames in order that my faith would be purified. Um, Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the fire? Yeah, I think the book opens up, and I hope this doesn't scare people off, but I I open up a little bit with Nietzsche, who I've read quite thoroughly. And uh, and I have a a strange affection for Nietzsche. I like him. I think he was tragically wrong, but I also think he was very prescient. And he foresaw that— Western culture was entering a time where it would be said God is dead. He's not making some sort of just simple argument for atheism, though he was an atheist. Uh, What he was was a PK. (laughs) He was a preacher's kid who was, as many PKs are, keenly attuned to hypocrisy. And he saw that even though in the 1880s in Western Europe people continued to sort of identify as Christian, they no longer really began to live like, they were no longer living that way. And he realized that it wouldn't be long before society was moving away from having the worship of God, the belief in God at the very actual organizational center of their society. And he foretold this. Um, He tells it in the parable of the madman. Uh, A madman walks into a village on a bright sunny morning holding aloft a lantern. And he's crying out, where is God? Where is God? I cannot find God. 
and the villagers gather and begin to laugh at the absurdity of someone carrying a lantern in the bright sunshine and looking for God. Suddenly, the madman leaps into the midst of the villagers and says, I'll tell you where God is. God is dead, and we have killed him. And they begin to laugh, and he says, oh, I see, I've come too soon. My time is not yet. And then he smashes the lantern and goes into the churches and sings a requiem for God. I think in some ways Nietzsche didn't cause what has happened, but I, I like to think that the smashing of the lantern was something like Mrs. O'Leary's cow in the barn that kicks over the lantern and pretty soon all of Chicago's on fire. Nietzsche saw what was coming so that by the time we get to 1966, Time magazine can put on their cover, maybe their most famous cover, the question, is God dead? And so these are the kinds of flames that are... Uh, I mean, secularism is a real phenomenon, and I don't think it's good to cast it in culture war terms and just try to fight it. Being angry with people for losing their faith in modern times is a little bit like being angry at medieval people for dying of the plague. I mean, something really has happened. And mm -hmm. so uh, you're right, though. It's, we do, it's not good to deny it. There is a way that it can be refined. In many ways, what is being consumed is what we would describe as Christendom. This is the conflation mm -hmm. of Christian faith and uh, you know imperial political agenda, which has been around for 17 centuries, but it's really coming to the end. And so that which is being consumed is that which is consumable. Uh, but there, but we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so as we lean into that, and then learn learn how faith really resides within uh, the human person. It's not an intellectual ascent. It's actually something that has to do with spirit. It has to do with heart. Uh, as Blaise Pascal famously said, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. Pascal was a fantastic mathematician, a true genius. He wasn't opposed to reason, but he just understood that reason is not the primary way that we're going to encounter God experientially. So those, that's part of what the book is about. Yeah, it is, it's excellent. When everything is on fire, faith formed, uh, forged from the ashes. Um, Brian, when we come back from a very brief break, I'd, I'd like for you to talk about, if you will, um, leap um, because mm -hmm. what you've just alluded to is this transition in your own life from, I would say, being one kind or type of Christian to another. And that's actually a key part, I think, of this conversation. So mm -hmm. we are talking with Brian Zond. I would encourage you to check out his website. Zond is Z A H. ND, Brianzon.com. And yep, we're giving away copies today. If when everything's on fire, faith forged from the ashes is of interest to you, go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Pastor author and pilgrim, Brian Zond. You can find him at his website, Brian Zond, Z-A-H-N-D.com. We're talking today about his book, When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. All right, um, Brian, we have a listener who is wondering, um, okay, ask him how he could take 40 days off three times. 
to do this pilgrimage of 500 miles? <laughs> Through one church for 40 years. <laughs> there you go. And in fact, uh, last Sunday we celebrated the 40th anniversary of our church. And so uh, once you have enough equity with a church and you have a team of people, you can have some breaks and go for some long walks. But the first one was in 2016, and that was the first break we'd taken in 35 years. And now I'm entering the stage where I know that my pilgrim self is my best self, and so it's good for me to go for these long walks and then come back and try to continue to do what I do as a pastor and writer and all of that. So Francis Schaeffer took some long walks, but it was just around um, a really, really, really short um, track in the attic. Um, and so I this this idea that pastors, particularly if they're going to have a long obedience in the same direction, which clearly you have done, they have to go for long walks. And sometimes those long walks um, are in this conversational space where I don't want to be this kind of Christian anymore. If yes. this is all there yes. is about being a Christian, I, I don't want to do this anymore. So talk with us about LEAP. Well, I'll get to that. I, I have to say something about a long obedience in the same direction. A favorite line of mine from, you know, that comes from Nietzsche. We know it as Christians from Eugene Peterson, who was a dear friend and really was sort of my mentor in how to be a pastor. But it's Nietzsche that gives us that phrase. And that's really what I've tried to do with my life. Now, leap, um, we speak of the leap of faith. It's actually the leap to faith, and it comes to us from Christian thinker Soren Kierkegaard, who was in some ways the contemporary and opposite side of Nietzsche. They never met. Um, Nietzsche may have heard of Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard would never have heard of Nietzsche. But they were both doing the same thing. They're both critiquing Christendom. Nietzsche thought it was just an empty husk. Um, Kierkegaard, on the other hand, believed that the true kernel of faith was actually within that gospel message. And Kierkegaard understands that there is a distance between, um, there's this ditch that we have to leap over. What's happened in modernity is that faith has migrated into the head, and it's usually thought of just some sort of mental ascent. Rather, faith is more an orientation of the soul. It's really an act of obedience. It's a decisive act that says, absurd though it may be, I somehow believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, and now I'm going to live my life accordingly. In fact, Jesus sets that forth to us when he says, I think it's in John 7, 17, anyone who resolves to do the will of God will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking from my own. So Jesus says, really, you're never going to know whether what I'm saying is from God or not until you attempt to live it. And that really is the leap. And so I'm inviting people really to climb down out of their head into their heart you know, out of the attic up there with all those dusty National Geographics and come down into the the heart or the hearth room and and sit with Jesus and the things that are troubling you and you wonder about and threaten your faith, simply talk to Jesus about mm -hmm. that, but hold on to the core of your faith, which is the seminal confession that Jesus is the Christ, the mm -hmm. Son of the living God, and leap toward that faith and then begin to live in obedience to that in that, that long obedience in the same direction.
Amen. Yeah, you feel yeah. you feel very Eugene Peterson esque to me, and so um, I'm that glad to know. Place. Yeah, I'm <laughs> glad to know that about you. All right, I have a um, what's going to sound like a silly question, but it it is sincere. Um, when are you going back? And um, and when you go back, will you look for Oscar? Did you meet Oscar at any point along your journey? Oh, he is a donkey. I mean, did you meet oh, him? Oh, yeah. yeah well, no, I know of Oscar. Yes, yes. All right. Kind of famous. So, uh, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd hope to go back, you know, next year, but I have enough commitments in the fall mm-hmm. of 20. We'll be coming up on 2022. I won't be back. Maybe we get back in, in uh, 2023. Because you know people are going to people are gonna want to go with you, which <laughs> yeah, is going to— which is going to change the nature of the experience for you and for them. So, because there is a walking with that takes place um, did, out there take, in on a pilgrimage. Yeah, I did a a documentary film crew came over in 2019. They said we want to walk with you and interview you for like four or five days. I said, all right. And they asked me in a month out, well, where will you be on these dates? I said, I don't know. <laughs> it's a long walk. <laughs> I said, y'all, I can give you maybe two days notice. And but, but they found me and we walked and it was good. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I hope you'll come back. I find you very delightful. Thank you. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Um, you guys can visit with Pastor Brian Zond at Zahn, Z-A-H-N-D dot com. The book is When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. We do have copies to give away today from our friends at InterVarsity. Go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, for those of you joining us for the very first time in Des Moines, Iowa, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Faith Radio Listening family. If you've got friends in Des Moines, friends or family in Des Moines, and you want to reach out to them, we are now live. Faith 100.7 on your radio dial. And you guys already know this. You can listen anytime, anywhere at MyFaithRadio.com or on the Faith Radio app. Would love for you to become radio missionaries by sharing the good news of what God is doing in and through the Faith Radio Network with others. Um, Love to hear your feedback as well. You know you can always text me during the show at 877-933-2484. Thank you to all of the engagement on the text line today, even for those of you uh, joking around. I, I definitely appreciate it. Appreciate your input. Appreciate you being here. So as we um, as we wrap up um, our conversation today, I want you to consider the the question about truth, the question about beauty, the question about a leap, not of faith, but a leap to faith. What's the step of faith you need to take today in the direction of Jesus? Maybe the step you need to take uh, with Jesus is a step of acknowledging just how beautiful he is. Just how beautiful creation is. The beauty of the sunrise. The beauty of a drop of water. The beauty of a flickering flame. The beauty of a newborn baby. The beauty of a newfound wrinkle. 
the beauty of an old hand, the beauty of a seasoned heart. Maybe that's the step in faith you need to take today toward Jesus. Maybe it's a step of truth. Maybe you need to take a step, pivot away from a lie that you have been led to believe, but you know it's not true. And you need to turn toward the one who is the truth and find yourself under the yoke of his discipleship and take a step of truthful faith with him. Maybe the step of faith you need to take today is into the fire where the dross is going to be burned off. We'll be right there with you. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.